If there's reunification and if, well, it, it would be the case that I think the EU would accept uh, a united Ireland as, as a successor state, if you like, to, to, to the Republic of Ireland, those EU rights and the Charter in particular would reappear in the North here and, and people could cite the European Charter in, in litigation. But that Charter only ever applies in areas that are within the scope of the European Union to legislate for. So if we take a uh, a matter such as housing or health, for example. The mm. EU has no real competence in those areas, and so the Charter of Fundamental Rights would not play much of a role in any litigation over housing rights or health and social care rights. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's Podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. I'm delighted to say that our guest today is Professor Bryce Dixon, who is Emeritus Professor of International and Comparative Law at Queen's University Belfast. And Bryce has published, as part of the Aaron series, an article entitled Implications for the Protection of Human Rights in the United Ireland. As I'm sure you know, we have respondents to each article that we publish. In this case, the respondents were Professors Suzanne Egan and Fiona Lundras, Unfortunately, neither of them is available to take part in today's podcast, uh, but I might raise a couple of the points they make as best as I understand them. So, Bryce, you're very welcome. I just wanted to ask you, first of all, if you could sort of summarise, what are the main points you make in your article and, and what approach do you take? Well, thank you for the invitation to participate in this podcast, Rory. Um, the The article is intending to point out what difference it might make, especially for people living in the north of the island, if there were a united Ireland from a human rights point of view. Now, I'm not pretending, and indeed the conclusions of my article support this, that many people are going to make their vote for or against a united Ireland depend upon the human rights situation. Um, but it is of some relevance and potential significance in, in, in short, I'm arguing in the article that, frankly, it won't make a great deal of difference for the people of Northern Ireland as regards their human rights, whether they continue to, to live in a UK or in a united Ireland, because the two human rights regimes currently are pretty similar. There are minor differences, and there's a potential for, for greater difference, of course, but I don't think and a lot depends on the precise terms of the unification agreement, if there is one, I don't think that the protection of human rights is going to be one of the, the key debating points in, in the lead up to that referendum. Yeah, thank you, Bryce. I mean, you, you mentioned, you just mentioned there now, and you, you say in the article that the differences are, are, are relatively minor, um, but there are differences nonetheless, as you explain in the article. Um, wh wh what are they? Well, I guess the fundamental difference is that uh, the UK doesn't have a written constitution and therefore its main um, starting point when it comes to the protection of human rights is an Act of Parliament, the Human Rights Act of 1998, which to all intents and purposes incorporates most of the European Convention on Human Rights and, and enables people in Northern Ireland to, to cite those rights in court. But being an act of parliament, it is amendable and repealable um, at the will of parliament. 
although it has been acknowledged to have some kind of quasi-constitutional status. And indeed, its own provisions trump other provisions of other acts of parliament passed before and after the Human Rights Act. To that extent, it is a, a constitutional statute. Um, but it, it could, in theory, and in fact, it's being reviewed at the moment by the, the current government, and it may be amended if not totally repealed in the not-too-distant future. In Ireland, of course, the, the basic foundation for the protection of rights is the constitution. And although Ireland does have an act which is similar to the Human Rights Act in the UK, that's the European Convention on Human Rights Act of 2003, which operates in, in similar ways to the Human Rights Act, it's not superior to the Constitution. So the courts basically in Ireland cannot invalidate legislation, use it, I mean, ordinary domestic legislation, uh, using the European Convention on Human Rights Act, as, as can be done in Britain under the Human Rights Act, they'd have to do it under the Constitution in the Republic. And although that does happen you know, fairly frequently, I think there's about 100 occasions in which a piece of um, legislation by the Oireachtas has been declared to be repugnant to the, the Constitution and therefore invalid, which is much more frequent than um, declarations of incompatibility or invalidity under the Human Rights Act in, in, in the UK, uh, it still is a fairly rare occasion. Uh, and those are the differences, if you like, in the, the basis for human rights protection. But in, in terms of you know, individuals or specific rights, uh, is there anything worth being aware of? Uh, to be honest, not a great deal. Um, there's a lot of difference in the detail. So if we take, for example, the protection of people's rights after they have been arrested for a crime, um, in, in Northern Ireland and in the rest of the UK, there's a very detailed statutory framework and codes of practice governing the rights of such people. Um, it isn't anything like as extensive as that in Ireland, although I know there's a, a Garda Shikona powers bill going through at the moment in the very early stages anyway, and it would probably be a bit similar to the, the Northern Ireland Police and Criminal Evidence Order, as it's called, and there are also differences in the area of family law, say, um, the law on domestic violence and on, on surrogacy, for example, is, I would say, more protective of rights in Northern Ireland uh, than the law currently is in Ireland. Although, again, I know that on, on surrog surrogacy, at least, there's, there's a move to, to have reforms. There's There are differences as regards equality. Well, one of the basic principles of, of the Irish constitution is the right to equality under the law, although in practice the, the courts in Ireland haven't given that its literal meaning, uh, and equality is really protected under the Equal Status Acts and the Employment Equality Acts in the Republic rather than under the constitution. In the UK, equality, non-discrimination, is protected by the Equality Act of 2010. When I say the UK, I should really say just Great Britain because the Equality Act of 2010 doesn't apply in Northern Ireland. So in Northern Ireland, having once been at the forefront of equality law, insofar as 
we were the first part of the UK to, to protect people against religious and political opinion discrimination, for example, going back to the 1970s. From being in the forefront of equality law, Northern Ireland is now at the back of the queue or the, the, the back of the pack as regards equality legal protections in the UK because GB has leapfrogged the north of Ireland uh, through, the, through the Equality Act 2010. So probably equality is slightly better protected in, in the Republic than it is in the north at the moment. Yeah, no, thank you. One of the things which kind of you know, became clear to me, I think, in your article um, is that in terms of their international obligations, the UK and Ireland are quite similar. I mean, they have signed up to most of the same either Council of Europe or 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 UN instruments, including optional protocols. So there are differences, um, and of course both have so-called dualist um, systems, whereby uh, the do- the Oireachtas or Parliament have to legislate uh, to give effect to rights. So th- the fact that there is this um, you know, commonality uh, between the international obligations of, of both, I mean, should that be a a comfort? to people in Northern Ireland uh, thinking about in the future? Not really, Rory. I mean, it's it's reassuring to up to a point, but the, the more basic point is that these international obligations uh, are not justiciable in the courts of either the North or the South at the moment, unless they have been transposed into domestic law through an act of the Oireachtas or through an act of the Northern Ireland Assembly or the UK Parliament. They're not enforceable in our courts. Uh, The European Convention on Human Rights is the exception in that regard because it has been, to all intents and purposes, incorporated through the Human Rights Act in the UK and through the European Convention on Human Rights Act in in the Republic. So the difference as regards the international obligations uh, of Ireland and, and the UK or Northern Ireland would play out more at the at the level of the various treaty monitoring bodies that sit in, in in Geneva and in Strasbourg, making evaluations of the degree to which the governments in the two countries are or are not conforming to their obligations under the, the treaties. There, there wouldn't be much potential for those obligations to be litigated in, in the courts of either, of either country. Uh, in the UK in particular, it's now more clear than ever that the, and I say that because of recent decisions by the UK Supreme Court, it's more clear than ever that international legal obligations on the human rights front that have not been incorporated into domestic law will play an increasingly invisible role in any litigation. In other words, the judges are not going to pay much attention, if any, to those obligations unless they have been incorporated into domestic law. And I think that is pretty much the situation in, in Ireland as well. So lawyers might cite these international obligations in a bid to boost their arguments in a domestic court, but very few Irish judges are going to say, yes, well, we're going to we're going to apply those international obligations as if they were part of domestic Irish law. Understood. Of course, one uh, change, I suppose, for Northern Ireland, if there were to be United Ireland, it would be the status of the EU Charter of uh, Fundamental Rights. Now, I remember being around at the time it was being negotiated and, of course, the intention was very much at the time that it would essentially codify, encapsulate 
uh, ex- existing rights rather than create new ones. But do you think you know that reversion, as it were, for Northern Ireland to being covered by the Charter would have any meaningful effect? Well, again, uh, not to any significant stent- extent. Uh, I think, Rory, I mean, if there's reunification and if, well, it, it would be the case that, that I think the EU would accept uh, a united Ireland as as a successor state, if you like, to, to, to the Republic of Ireland, those EU rights and the Charter in particular would reappear in the North here and, and people could cite the European Charter in, in litigation. But that Charter only ever applies in areas that are within the scope of the European Union to legislate for. Yeah. Um, so if we take a, a matter such as housing or, empl- well, no employment would be covered, but housing or health, for example, the mm. EU has no real competence in those areas. And so the Charter of Fundamental Rights would not play much of a role in any litigation over housing rights or uh, health and social care rights. Um, so it, it could the Charter could play a minor role in other areas. But as you've intimated yourself, the, the Charter is very largely based on the European Convention on Human Rights in any event. It, it, it extends it slightly in, in one or two respects as regards privacy rights and the right not to be discriminated against on the basis of your genetic background, for example. So yes, it, it, that the, the, the reemergence, the, re, the reappear, reappearance of the Charter for people in the North here would be of some benefit uh, if there were a United Ireland. And it's also, I should add, that it's also playing a part even as we speak in, in Northern Ireland, because the protocol, the, the Irish, Northern Irish protocol to the withdrawal agreement uh, preserves the role of the charter insofar as there will be any disputes over the application of that charter, of that protocol. And then I suppose when it comes just to the questions of uh, the rights attaching to EU citizenship, I mean, of course, Irish citizens in Northern Ireland um, who make up you know, very many of the people of Northern Ireland and could, in principle, make up nearly all of them. You know, they already, of course, continue to enjoy EU citizenship rights, including, I suppose, critically, the rights to free movement and indeed the right also to work in the EU institutions. So I suppose that would probably not be a major change, I suppose, if only if you had those in Northern Ireland who were too opted, if that option, if that possibility were open, not to become um, Irish citizens, I suppose they will continue not to benefit um, from from those rights. Yes, I think that's right. And, and other benefits that, that go with EU citizenship, m- many of those are are not human rights as such. They are economic rights that come with membership of the European Union. So re- rejoining the EU would would be beneficial in those terms, in economic, even even social and cultural terms. But whether those Benefits are rights or not is a is a disputed question, and and whether they could be litigated as rights is is always and will for some time be um, a difficult question. Yeah, I remember again in the Bre- in the Brexit negotiations. I mean, the ter- we we used the terms um, uh, rights and uh, and entitlements, I suppose, which you know, maybe covers economic eco- economic possibilities. Would you or indeed other commentators think that you know allowing for the fact that the two regimes are not you know hugely different in terms of either you know substantive or procedural um, you know rights. Would you say there are significant gaps you know existing in terms of the the range of rights which potentially might be covered? Well, 
both the UK and Ireland, like many other European countries, it has to be admitted, are not particularly strong in the field of economic, social and cultural rights. Hmm. The Supreme Court in Ireland, as, as you will know, Rory, is, is pretty averse to considering those rights to be protected by the Constitution. And in the UK, we, we've had examples in recent months of challenges in courts to the, um, the reforms on welfare benefits that the government has introduced, the, the, the fact that if you've got more than two children, you can't claim extra child tax credits or universal credit, the, the, the so-called bedroom tax that was imposed on people who had too many bedrooms in their, in their home. Um, the, the courts have, have not struck down any of that legislation on the basis that it breaches human rights. And, and that wouldn't happen in the Republic of Ireland either, I don't think, at, at the moment anyway. So in those fields, both both jurisdictions are are defective. I think is that the kind of issue you were getting at? Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. Just I mean that that emerged in your article, but just if there were any others, I mean, no, you're right about the the South as well, and I, I know also at the certainly at the administrative level, we were very slow to um, uh, to, to 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 ratify the convention. Um, on, on persons with disabilities to take a, an instance precisely because of the anxieties on the part of the Department of Finance and others as to what might be might be involved. So social and economic rights, but the more as there are classical rights you you would feel are 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 are, are you know, reasonably protected in in both uh, in both jurisdictions. I, I would yes, um, uh, civil and political rights, the right to a fair trial, the right to liberty the right not to be ill-treated, the right to free speech and freedom of religion, etc., are pretty well protected in, in both, both jurisdictions. Um, I think it's, it's important to, to remember or to emphasise that both in Northern Ireland and in the south of Ireland already, um, there is pretty strong protection against religious discrimination. I mean, there, there has been since partition, as, as, as we know. Well, certainly in the north, it was written into the, the Government of Ireland Act and, and therefore... Uh, you know, became part of even the the Stormont administration's framework, and uh, not so in the in the Irish Free State and in the Republic's framework. Uh, but thanks to EU directives, um, the, the the law both north and south on that kind of issue is is um, is, is is pretty much the same. That there is a, an issue that unionists in Northern Ireland may may well raise prior to any referendum on, a unific- on unification. And that is that if they were in a united Ireland, their, their, their minority status as a political grouping, <clears throat> their cultural background, etc., would not be protected in, in the way that it should be. Now, um, they, they may be right up to a point uh, on that. But first of all, the, the equality provision in the Irish constitution that I mentioned earlier may be invoked by them to, to protect their rights. Uh, insofar as those rights are part of the right to free speech, so the right to, to express your opinions and, and, um, and, and hold events, to, to celebrate certain events, et cetera, um, that, that right would, those rights would be protected um, under the Irish constitution. But on top of all of that, we must remember that alongside the inter-party agreement on Good Friday. There was a British-Irish treaty, which you'll be very familiar with, Rory, I think, which specifically requires 
Ireland, the 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 the, the south of Ireland, if the, if there were unification, it 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 requires Ireland to preserve. I think I've got the the, the wording here to preserve the cultural identity and parity of esteem, etc., of people in the north. Yes, it, it says whoever exercises jurisdiction over the, the territory of Northern Ireland, the, the government shall be founded on the principles of full respect for and equality of civil, political, social and cultural rights, of freedom from discrimination for all citizens, and of parity of esteem and of just and equal treatment for the identity, ethos and aspirations of both communities. Now, that's an international obligation on, on Ireland mm. in the event of unification. Difficult to enforce through the courts, perhaps, because it is an international obligation, not a domestic one. Um, but I would imagine that in any treaty accompanying unification, um, that, that, that obligation would be given some prominence and, and unionists would insist upon it being justiciable in any, in any future political framework. Yeah, again, I, I remember in the 1990s, and, and this is reflected to some extent um, in the sort of pre-negotiation, if you like, of the of the Good Friday Agreement, this whole question of whether it's possible to identify collective rights held by groups, um, different groups, different communities is possible, or whether you have to go down the route of uh, protecting individual rights, which I suppose is much more the tradition in both, in both jurisdictions. Um, and, you know, I think... There was this idea of a of a charter, an all island charter of rights, which was kind of meant to address some of those concerns. I suppose you know, parity of esteem, in particular, as a concept, very much applied to a balance between communities as opposed to between individuals within those um, communities. But I suppose, as we've seen in the north itself, I mean, an awful lot um, of these issues are are difficult to adjudicate. And you know, for example, the question of the flying of flags. I mean, which flags um, should be flown on which days if you are to have a proper balance between uh, different communities? So I suppose a lot of these issues, you know, m might not be easily uh, enshrined in in law um, in a in a new um, in a new Ireland. But the individual rights, as you mentioned, are are pretty robustly protected. Yes, no, I, I agree with that. I, I'm glad you, you you mentioned the Charter of Rights because that was <clears throat> something which Suzanne Egan, in her response to my article, I know I know she she referred to that because she, as a member of the Irish Human Rights Commission, was was to the fore in developing um, that charter, uh, as I was myself to, to some extent er, earlier on. Um, but I think even she would acknowledge that the charter was and still is, I think primarily envisaged as a political document rather than a legal document. Mm. It, it's a document that aims to ensure that all the parties represented in government, North and South, or in the whole island of Ireland, uh, would commit themselves to a certain approach whereby the, the rights of these different communities, as you mentioned, would be protected. The difficulty with that is that it's, it's very easy sometimes for parties to sign up to a document like that, but very difficult to to hold their feet to the fire when it comes to it. Having said that, um, the, the law on individual rights has, has been expanding of late, I think, in, into the area almost of what you would call class actions mm. by representatives of certain victim groups are able to go to court and, and gain a victory, not just for themselves, but, but 
for all the other people who are members of their same community. And so even if if the law doesn't specifically protect group rights, uh, they can be indirectly protected through that route. Thinking then, I mean, off a hypothetical United Ireland, um, one of the issues you address in the paper is how, in, in practical terms, a kind of transition would occur um, for Northern Ireland and for people of Northern Ireland in regard to rights. I mean, and you say that one option clearly would be simply to um, immediately apply the legal systems and, and the substantive jurisprudence of the of the south of the Republic, but there are other options as as well. And perhaps you might say a bit about that. Yes, I mean, I think from a practical point of view, um, any unification would need to be a bit of a process rather than an event. Um, a transitional reunification process would be wise. The thing that I would really press for, I'm straying slightly from the rights issues here, but the, the, the option I would vote for in that is to maintain the existence of the Northern Executive at Assembly for a, a period of years um, to allow people in the North, especially unionists, to feel some sort of continuing involvement or, or reassurance that, that, that they would be represented in the governance of their of their six counties, as it would be then. The default government would be in Dublin rather than in London, but to all intents and purposes, the Assembly and all its paraphernalia could continue to exist within a united Ireland for, for a, a, a few years. The, the, the strict position under public international law is that if one state cedes territory to another state, so if the UK cedes Northern Ireland to, the, to, to Ireland, uh, as a result of a referendum. The, the position in international law is that Ireland takes over or they, takes over the responsibility um, internationally for the rights of the people in the territory that it has acquired. Ireland's current obligations under the various international human rights treaties would um, be extended to people living in Northern Ireland and they would cease to benefit from the protection of the UK's international uh, legal obligations. Now, as you've suggested earlier, that's not going to make much of a difference because the Irish government and the UK government over the years have signed up to pretty much the same treaties and, and protocols um, as each other. Uh, so ordinary people won't suddenly acquire a huge number of additional rights. Um, but... I say not a huge number, but it will mean, for example, that people living in Northern Ireland will be able to take complaints to the, the Human Rights Committee of the UN, which deals with civil and political rights, the Committee on Racial Discrimination at the UN, and uh, also to the organisations in, in Ireland will be able to take, in North and South, will be able to take complaints to the European Committee on Social Rights. Uh, Nobody in the North can do that at the moment because the UK hasn't signed up to those, those rights mechanisms. On the other hand, people in the North here will not any longer be able to take complaints to the UN's Committee on Disability. Mm. Ireland hasn't signed up to that particular uh, route. But you know, generally speaking, uh, the position uh, will remain very similar to what it is at present. Yes, I mean, you'd, you, I mean, the idea of a transition, I mean, clearly it's 
it, it, it applies to all sorts of different uh, areas which are the subject of the Aaron's uh, project. I mean, for example, I suppose um, in terms of people's existing, you know, welfare rights, taxation obligations, uh, even the, the currencies in which they hold their their savings, etc., etc., etc. I suppose there are, you know, m- many issues of that, the operation of the health service, the operation of the educational system. There are many issues which could probably, you know, it seems be dealt with um, only after a period, you know, irrespective of whether or not you had a, 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 a still an executive in, in an assembly in Stormont. Coming coming close to the end, obviously, you know, the other person, the other respondent to your paper, Fiona de Lundris, in a way, she in in her comment went a bit wider, and um, by arguing, and and this is not really something I suppose which which you know you were trying to address. She t- seems to take the view that this is would be a good time uh, to to have a kind of complete review of of all of the human rights protections which exist and and don't exist in North and 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 South, and in particular when it comes to social and economic rights, to to take the opportunity. Um, again, I think you know I personally would have my doubts about whether those steering unification, uh, a unification process already very complex in itself, would want to to go into that at that time. But um, but maybe maybe it would be different. Yes, um, I mean part of me agrees with Fiona, um, and I, I think most of us on the on the liberal side of things would would favour a more radical approach. To, to constitutional reform in Ireland as a whole. And, and unification is a good, you might think, opportunity to do that. On the other hand, the unification process is going to be controversial at the time, uh, maybe more than controversial. You know, it, may, it may be a dangerous moment, um, certainly in, in Northern Ireland, if, if loyalist paramilitaries have, have anything to, 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 to say about it. Um, so you wouldn't want to overcomplicate the, the the change process. You'd want to keep the transition as as smooth as possible, and and why open up all those other very interesting and probably worthwhile possibilities for reform just at that moment? I think that those reforms are probably for a for a, for another day. Um, um, and many of what many of the things that Fiona would like to to happen, let's say you know greater recognition of and protection of the rights of women, um, that kind of thing can be done by ordinary legislation, at least for the time being. Not a constitutional guarantee, of course, but but uh, society can be made a much better and fairer place through ordinary legislation uh, without contravening the constitution. And uh, that, that's a route I, I think we should go down. Uh, and I, if I could just say this as well, Rory, before we finish, um, there's been talk, as, as you know very well, for for years, even prior to the Good Friday Agreement, about a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. And we haven't quite we haven't got there at all. We're, we're, no, we're no, no nearer to it probably now than we were in 1998. Um, if we do get a Bill of Rights, however, uh, the obligations under the Good Friday Agreement mean that um, the Republic will have to emulate that Bill of Rights and, and give everyone in the south of Ireland the same rights as people in the north have. Mm. Uh, uh, although the Irish governments over the years have very much supported a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland, I don't think they've been completely honest with their own electorate, mm. if I'm truthful. 
because um, I, I can't see those those governments um, signing up to the kind of Bill of Rights they they claim to want for Northern Ireland, with all its economic, social, and cultural rights that that uh, many human rights activists are, are calling for. That's just not going to happen in in the Republic anytime soon, I think. Which is not to say that I don't want to see a Bill of Rights. But it could be acquired through ordinary legislation in the way that I was saying. Uh, the, the Fiona's recommendations could be implemented in the South. Yes, as I say, this is again a bigger a bigger question because you know some advocates of United Ireland will will say that this is a, a wonderful opportunity almost to to reinvent um, our state and and society. And there are others who will say, well, you know, we have to do what we have to do. Let's do the you know the the, the you know, let's do what is necessary rather than what is desirable at at the beginning, and then leave it. You know, to, to to further consideration, but it's a big it's a big debate. Finally, Bryce, just you know, asking you if there are any kind of final reflections or thoughts you have. I mean, just to stress that one of the things you say um, is that the guiding principle for the governments uh, of Ireland and the UK should be that there is no regression in the degree of protection currently afforded, and I take it that by that you mean that you know, even allowing for the fact that the differences are relatively minor, that nobody in Northern Ireland should lose any of the rights they currently have and obviously you know in reverse that nobody in the republic should lose any of the rights they currently have even if those rights are not absolutely identical at least to begin with uh, yes I, I do think that and I think um it, it's only right and proper to to promise that to the the people of Northern Ireland um before they enter into any kind of referendum not because they they stand really to to, to lose dramatically on the rights front, as I've, as I've just been saying, but um, the, the principle of non-regression is, I wouldn't say it's a particularly, it's not a principle that is uh, universally enforced through international human rights law, but it, it, it still is uh, cited very frequently. The best analogy at the moment, I think, that we can draw on is, is that in the, the Ireland-Northern Ireland Protocol, which specifically says that there must be no diminution in, in the rights of people in Northern Ireland consequent on uh, to, to Brexit. Uh, now, that's that's limited to the rights protected in that particular protocol, but nevertheless, it, it's a good precedent, I think. And, and I don't see why uh, an Irish government would, would be opposed to signing up to that non-regression uh, principle, given that the, the rights protections currently in in the north and the south are, are pretty similar, so it's not a big risk for them to take. Absolutely. Bryce Dixon, thank you so much for, for this conversation, really illuminating and, and interesting and setting out issues with great uh, clarity and a depth of knowledge. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Rory. Aaron's it's joint project of the Royal Irish Academy the premier All-Ireland Scholarly Institution and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.